You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Andrew Komarnechke is the author of Ezra Sleff, the next Nobel laureate in literature. Thank you for joining me, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. This book is a hoot. It is a postmodern satire of postmodern satires. This is a tough road to hoe because it is both engaging and kind of a bestseller in terms of the, the way it's read, but it also includes all the paraphernalia of postmodern literature. Talk about making the decision to make your first novel uh, writing in what must be the toughest genre to write. Hey, well, what a question, Rick. Um, First of all, I should start by clearing something up. Although on the surface it appears to be my first novel, scratch a little deeper, and it's not. Um, It's maybe my seventh or eighth. You see, unknown to you, I wrote a number of previous novels using pen names. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, you, if you kind of did a bit of research and looked for me, you uh, won't notice those other novels in the background. So You're exactly I, I correct. I did. I was wondering because it's so yeah, uh, yeah. the writing is so self-assured. Well, tell us a little bit about some of those other novels. What was your uh, pen name? Okay. Well. Um, my first published novel was published under the name of Jack Strange, um, and I did, uh, I think, five novels as Jack Strange, and then my publisher, who was a small publisher, and you're very familiar with the small publishing scene. I think, uh, having done a little bit of research myself, I understand you've been following small presses for, is it 40 years or yeah, something co- ridiculous close now? to that, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think about that, um, right. So you won't be surprised when I tell you that my first publisher went bust or something and went out of operation. Um, maybe because they published my books. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go with another publisher. And much to my dismay, they already had a Jack Strange writing for them. <laughs> so I had to change my pen name to Jack D. McLean. So that became my second pen name. And all of those Jack Strange books are now published as Jack D. McLean. Um, and those were kind of funny satirical novels in the main. Uh, then I thought, well, a fancy trying my hand at a thriller. And I decided... What I'd go for was the thriller with the biggest twist ever, although it wasn't marketed that way. And because this was kind of a serious novel, I couldn't do it as Jack D. McLean. So with the assistance of my lovely wife, I came up with another pen name, A.K. Reynolds. So that was another pen name that I used. And finally, when I wrote Ezra Sleff, oh, yeah, and I should explain, um, there's a thing about books and names You see, this thriller, when I put this thriller to the publisher, um, the publisher actually rang me up and or one of the two people running the company. And the first thing she said to me, more or less, was, look, we don't think Andrew Komonetsky is a great name for a thriller writer. Would you care to use a pen name? (laughs) 
So I'd been anticipating this and I had the pen name ready, A.K. Reynolds, as it happened. Um, but finally, with Ezra Sleff, the next Nobel laureate in literature, I'd written a book for which my own name was eminently suitable. Because, you know, you've got your Vladimir Nabokovs and people like that working in this kind of area of postmodern fiction, haven't you? Um, we seem to have meandered in a very postmodern style away from the original question, haven't we? <laughs> but never mind. No, that's, uh, a, great, that's a great answer. I, yeah, it's yeah. really interesting to hear that because it makes perfect sense. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. Um, so anyway, um, I'd had a lot of practice at writing novels by the time I came to write this one. Although, funnily enough, this novel was the one that I think I probably wanted to write in the first place. Um, but it I'd feels been like kind that. Of... Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let me just tell you something of the background to it. You see, when it was, I mean, I'm kind of... I don't want to call myself an old guy. Let's say I'm a middle-aged guy now, right? <laughs> Stretching a point. Um, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I read Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with that work. Oh, uh, yeah. No, it's a real-life changer in terms of your perception of writing and reading and the, the, write, the reading experience. And as you read the book the the writing experience both of them come it's like a spider's web between the two absolutely and this just completely blew me away and i thought to myself aged 18 or whatever i was oh my goodness i so want to write a book i so, I so wish i'd written pale fire i want to write a book like pale fire so that was at the back of my mind for long enough um, and round about a similar age, I read a book um, that's a bit of a cult novel. It's kind of well-known, but not well-known. It's called it's, It Happened in Boston by Russell H. Greenan. And um, this book had a lot of weirdness in it. Um, I suppose it would it would have made a good Tartarus press book if they'd been around <laughs> when uh, he was writing that novel. And I thought, uh, at some stage, I thought, oh, I'd love to do a pale fire type novel, but some of that weird, with some of that weirdness in it from it happened in Boston, that kind of thing. So I had those ideas percolating for decades as it happened along with the desire to be a writer. Then as I was approaching my, oh God, I hate to admit this, 60th birthday, I thought, hey, I better write a novel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because that's the thing I've always wanted to do. And um, I wrote my first novel. And I don't know if you will recall this. I mean, I don't want to refer too much to my own books in this way, but... You might remember there's a little bit in um, Ezra Sleff where Botkin comments, um, it's in his book of things he loathes and detests. One of the things he loathes and detests is any novel with a zombie in it. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, I feel similarly about uh, movies. <laughs> aside, from yeah, the, yeah. aside from the original, you know, I... When I was a kid, yeah. I saw Night of the Living Dead, and I read, actually read the Reader's Digest review of it saying, this is a deplorable movie. So, of course, I saw it, and I enjoyed it. After that, yeah. 
and not so much. Well, understandably. Um, but as it happens, that was kind of a little private joke of mine because my first ever published novel was called Celebrity Chef Zombie Apocalypse. <laughs> Uh, and just quickly, the premise of the novel is that um, all the celebrity chefs in the world become zombies and try to take over the world. And of course, um, they don't just eat people in the normal zombie way. They have to cook you to perfection in a cordon bleu manner and put special <laughs> sauces on their victims. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you you should be pitching that stuff in Hollywood, my friend. <laughs> well, I I was thinking of a, a theme park, a bit like the Harry Potter books. <laughs> now, with, with the smell of incinerated flesh wafting <laughs> over by the uh, rides that people go on. Oh uh, well. There you go. That, that that that's something you can't do on radio. Is that wafting flesh smell? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> our, our audience is just going to have to imagine that. I'm afraid. Yes. <laughs> yes. So now, uh, you you zoom past. You're you're heading towards your 60th birthday. You're deciding to write your first novel. Yes. Was this a zombie chef, a, a celebrity chef, zombie apocalypse, or was this Ezra Slef? Oh well. That was definitely Celebrity Chef Zombie Apocalypse, okay. right? And, um, you know, that this is going back a few years. How did I get the idea for that? Honestly, I struggle to remember. Um, I think I'd noticed at the time zombie books were popular. And I thought, I had a look at one, and I thought, this is crying out for someone to do some sort of parody. And um, the idea just hit me out of where I don't know. What if it was a kind of what if thing? What if it was only the celebrity chefs in the world who became zombies? And then the novel after that, it was so easy to write. It just came out of me. And I suppose in a modest, small, pressish kind of way, it's been a success, quite a big success. Uh, loads of positive reviews on Amazon. Um, most people find it a pretty funny book, I'm pleased to say, which was the whole point of it. Uh, that sounds like fun. So uh, after your, your stint writing uh, about uh, celebrity chef zombie apocalypse and the yeah. follow-ups, um, Ezra Slef is, is not dissimilar. It seems like it takes the same kind of antic sensibility but aims it at, at postmodern literature, which is a much more diffuse and difficult target. So talk about taking on, you know, a, a, after having been a successful a genre novelist, to ha, talk about taking on your teenage ideal novel of, of uh, Nabokov's uh, Pale Fire. Yeah, well, what happened there was, by the time I sat down to write Ezra Slef, I'd written a number of satirical novels and I'd also written my thriller. And um, I'd really acquainted myself with how a conventional novel works. And it was determined that my post-modern novel should have that page-turning plot, albeit that it was going to be a post-modern novel. But I wasn't sure 
what form it would take or what the title would be. I just had this determination in my head to return to that idea from my teens and um, write my combination of pale fire and it happened in Boston, you know, the postmodern with the weirdness aspect. Um, and one day I was reading a biography of Anthony Burgess by uh, Roger Lewis. Mm -hmm. And this book was written quite some while ago. It was panned when it came out because Roger Lewis, as the biographer, he allowed himself to intrude in a very personal way on all the action. And his many footnotes with which the book is peppered often featured himself <laughs> and his rather extreme opinioners. And I thought, wow, it's so obvious. It's got to be a biography. And that that would be a great way to bring in the postmodern thing. And then um, there was a famous writer at risk, at risk of opening myself up to legal action. <laughs> no, I won't say the full thing. All I'll say is that this writer was pontificating about how great his own work is. And um, I thought, oh, yeah, the big-headedness involved in that, that would be a great sort of voice to assume for the person writing the biography. So I, I took a bit of that voice and put it in. Um, so then I had some of the ingredients. Now, also... I've spent, in learning to write, I've spent a lot of time reading thrillers and dissecting them. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is that that's a genre, that's an area where your audience is not remotely forgiving. You've got to grab them by the throat from more or less the opening sentence and keep a tight grip. Otherwise, you lose them. They chuck your book in the bin and they go on to the next book, don't they? It's it's not like the world of literary fiction where you can spend five pages describing a landscape. You know, you've got to steam straight in there. Um, this explains the inclusion of... Uh, Julian Flynn with Vladimir Nabokov in your favorite book's influences that, that absolutely, you list. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So I had to get, and one of the, actually, one of the things you find with thrillers, and maybe other books too, is the idea of the unreliable narrator, which is very popular. And I, of course, I thought, well, I've got to have him as an unreliable narrator. So more or less from page one, you can see that in Borkin, how unreliable he is, because he's describing something that's happening, uh, just in the introduction that's happening between him and Slef. But the reader, reading between the lines, knows that what's going on is more or less the exact opposite of what Borkin is describing. And that's a nice little trick to play. It's very entertaining. Now, um, and uh, yes, yeah, sorry, go on. Let's kind of uh, set up the novel. This is uh, this novel is as written by a, a fellow who calls himself uh, Humbert Bodikin, and we might remember uh, a character from a famous uh, was it a Kubrick movie? Uh, 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 who called himself Humbert Humbert? <laughs> And yes. <laughs> based on yes. a novel written by, by Vladimir Nabokov. So 
even from the beginning, were twigging to the postmodern nature of this. And, and I think one of the things you do really well is, again, you set yourself a high bar. You've got a character who is in love with himself, is just a flat-out liar, and the person he lies to most is himself. He so he's not very likable. Yet as we read the book, it's a very he's very engaging to read about. So talk about treading that line between having a character that many people would probably not slow down if he was in front of if they were driving their car and he walked in front of them. But but to keep them that somebody you want to read about. Yeah, well, that is definitely a challenge that I wanted to take on. Because um, one of the things, of course, one of the rules of writing that you're always being told is that your central character has to be likable. And it just seemed to me that that's a rule I don't want to go along with. I want to challenge that rule. And Botkin does this. But you're right, it's a difficult line to tread. What you have to do is somehow engage the audience's sympathy with him. Um, maybe bring them, want them to be, well, look, Hitchcock did it in his films to some degree, didn't he? Um, you kind of, you were almost on the side of the villain at times because he would share with you the villain's weaknesses and his little foibles. And so that's what I did with Humbert. What, the way that I angled it was that yes Humbert does all these things he's duplicitous um, he's self-centered he's boastful but he has his moments where he's down and and he arouses your sympathy and also although he's a liar he does share himself with the reader he's disarmingly honest at times and I think that that's part of what makes him engaging well too I think there are times when he comes up, does things that actually seem like they would be charming in real life. There's a scene where he's enamored of a new, he sees a new love in the 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 bar, and yeah. he likens her to a classic portrait um, by a classic painter. And then he he holds up, he finds that painting on his phone, search phone, brings up the in, image and says, "You look like this to the woman," and you think wow, well, that's kind of sweet and charming. You think, well, you know, there are strains of niceness in a fellow who is also just, I mean, it's, he's self-bent on, on destroying himself. <laughs> yes, although he doesn't really know it, does it? He thinks he's doing everything to better himself and it's always rebounding on him. <laughs> He he lives in this world of self-deception somehow. He can't see his own uh, faults and frailties. Well, I think one of the things that, that is interesting too is you do work in this kind of uh, the weird this the weird fiction aspect of it really well. And you you play it you do so by playing it really straight. And in many ways, um, this book is uh, is kind of reminds me of a very satirical uh, version of the devil and Daniel Webster. I mean, you you have, I mean, he's just, it's a straight, he meets the devil. And, and what's interesting is this kind of, there are two 
aspects to this because we have when he signs up at uh, uh, Oxford, uh, one of the his uh, bosses and idols is a man named Doctor Faustus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I... ta- talk about uh, also. Um, so talk about uh, setting this in, in Oxford. Oh, well, um, I wanted to have a setting which people all around the world, more or less, would would have heard of or would have had a chance of having heard of. And then the other thing was, of course, um, I wanted a seat of learning which people would be able to say, oh, yeah, that's one of the best. So had it been set in America, it might have been Harvard. Um, in England, it had to be Oxford or Cambridge. Um, so, yeah, uh, and and then the other, I suppose the other reason it was in Oxford is because I've visited Oxford a few times. And I always, as a rule, like to set my novels in places that I've actually visited. And then it's easy for me to conjure them up in my own mind's eye and do the descriptions. And hopefully then the reader picks up on those descriptions and can picture it in his or her own head rather more easily. So, yeah, those are the reasons behind setting it in Oxford. Well, now, it's interesting, and it's really fun, because when we see that this is a book about Ezra's life, uh, and early on, we, you know, our thoughts are, well, maybe this is just going to be about the writing, but we actually meet the the author, and you have a lot of fun with the, with that and with Slef's writing. So talk about creating the man who's the object of this uh, deluded and somewhat uh, light on talent uh, narrator of yours. Oh yeah, well Ezra Slef. Um, I mean. First of all, I looked at the names of people involved in modern and postmodern literature, and um, for some reason, I seized on Ezra from Ezra Pound, and of course, oh, of course. Um, yeah, there's Will Self, and I thought, actually, I just want to move the L about a bit. It works better somehow, and that's how I came up with Ezra Slef as the name, uh, but. Not there as was a, also, you know, I was reading uh, 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 about this book. By, uh, uh, there's a guy who writes a blog, D.F. Lewis, where he will oh yeah he blogs as he reads the book. So it's a yeah. very peculiar kind of book review. And then he says he he realized that it was, uh, you know, a Roman or a slef. I thought there's just like <laughs> there are so many puns in this book that it's really fun to read just to, to catch all the puns and they're easy to catch too you make it easy with a appendix and a glossary which itself is very funny yeah oh yes well um just going back to one of my literary heroes nabokov of course he had um either a glossary or an index. I think it might have been an index in Pale Fire. And I remember reading that and thinking, how is it that this guy has managed to make an index funny? Uh, I just found that phenomenal. So I wanted to just try and repeat something of that same thing in my novel. Um, And of course, um, there were all these words like Slefian and so on. 
which, and Slafa Khanna. Yeah, which allowed me to go back to things like Joycean and Beckety and, and bring in the whole Beckettesque or whatever, with <laughs> fake, fake philosophies and so on. Yeah. Now, uh, now, once you've established Humbert, and I think this is really, you do a great job from the very beginning, we see that, that Humbert says, well, Slef didn't, I'm not sure that Slef did this, but he probably had an experience very much like mine. <laughs> Which I think you, the, when doing that, you tell us, uh, of course, Humbert is telling us much more about himself. And I think that's a very sly and fun way to have a character or tell us all about himself while he's at least telling himself that that's not what he's doing. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Right from the very first sentence, before I even started writing the first sentence, I knew that was the approach I was going to take, that it was going to be a book about the narrator who was pretending to himself that he was writing the biography of the great novelist. So uh, that was coming all along. And one side formed that view Somehow, it was a book that was, you might be surprised here, it was a book that was very easy to write. Um, I can, yeah, I can imagine it. it it's, yeah. This is a book that's, in a sense, like method acting. Once you, yeah. once you take on the character, uh, you kind of, it's easy to become him. And I have to ask this because as a reader, I find found myself starting to think in in. Botany in a botanesque manner. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easily done. And the thing is, all of us really have these illicit thoughts, don't we, about evil things we would like to do, but we censor them out. We hold ourselves back. And maybe one of the th charming things about him is that he doesn't hold himself back. He goes right ahead and does them. He does the little evil things that we would maybe like to do, but we stop ourselves from doing. <laughs> um, now, uh, when, once you've des designed Humbert and, and have his voice, you have Ezra Sleff's name is, also, is on the cover. So you have yeah. to create the character Ezra Sleff. So talk about creating Ezra Sleff as a character outside that yeah that oh, well, uh, who is reported by 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 Humbert because you want Slef to be realistic enough so that Humbert can report on the realist real guy but lie about him all <laughs> to make yes. to make Humbert look better it's yes. it's a very twisted well, book <laughs> oh thank you that that is that is the highest praise actually i love that a very twisted book yeah, well, Slef, there, there are two aspects to Slef, really. Slef the writer and Slef the man. Now, Slef the writer was, believe me, again, it may seem odd to say this, it wasn't a great effort to do Slef the writer, you, you know, where I insert little bits of different books that Slef has written or descriptions of these books that he's alleged to have written. Because all I had to do was think about the canon of postmodern literature 
or books by authors that are not really known for being postmodern, but they've had a go at a postmodern kind of book. And then I could think, oh, yeah, well, Slef might have written that book, maybe in a slightly different way, but he might have written that book. So we've got a number of novels that Slef has written, which are recognisably um, linked to derivative of or mirror in some odd way books that are out there in the real world. And because they're out there, you know, and I've got some idea there to work with, it was very easy fabricating Slef's oeuvre. Now, as for Slef the Man, um, I based him physically in his cadaverous kind of look on a well-known postmodern author. <laughs> <laughs> I will leave you to work out who it is. There is one reviewer who got it bang on, by the way, recently, and I had to say, yes, you got it. <laughs> I, I'm not I, I I won't say. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, I think... There, are some the books are are hilarious. So so talk about creating the man too about his, you know what he does in reaction to Humbert. That oh Humbert's yes. going well, to report. Ezra, yeah, Ezra Slef. So that was him physically that kind of based him on the appearance physically to some degree of a well-known author, not bang on, but maybe a couple of other authors too, and of course he. Uh, he has his dormobile, like Anthony Burgess had and so on. Um, and I made him Russian because with my dad having been Ukrainian, I've got an ear for the way he would have talked. Um, and also, I guess I did use a bit of my father in him. My father had a way of being very brusque and dismissive. And Slef has that in spades with Humbert. So Humbert is trying to sort of fawn all over Slef, but Slef is forever avoiding him. And he, he avoids Humbert more and more as the novel goes on for various reasons which become clear, which I don't want to give away any plot spoilers now, but you know what I'm talking about. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> Humbert, yeah, Humbert is wanting to hero worship this great writer. And the great writer... Maybe he uses Humber a little bit when Humber is useful, and then he doesn't want to know him anymore. Now, uh, uh, one of the things that makes this book really a uh, fun to read are, of course, the footnotes, because a lot of a lot of the plot unfolds in the footnotes, and and it's just a fun form to read, especially these days. I, I read uh, this book electronically, so it's easy. You can just touch the thing and it brings yeah. the footnote and sends you back. So talk about writing the footnotes. And, and when you wrote them, did you know everything that was going going to go into footnotes or did they come afterwards? Did you uh, like move something back and forth between footnotes and actual text? I I wrote probably... 95% of the footnotes as I went along. And they, they just occurred to me while I was writing it. And then I had to quickly scribble down the footnote and then quickly get back to the main text before I'd forgotten where I was going with it. <laughs> uh, 
To to be honest, I suspect I might talk a bit that way sometimes, Rick. Maybe you're noticing <laughs> the way that I'm all over the place and never really honing in on the question you're putting to me. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'll try to focus a bit more in future. But yes, the so that's how the footnotes worked. And... Um, I used them to put in there some thoughts that I genuinely had about writing. For instance, th there's always some clever clogs out there, isn't there? Some smarty pants giving you some smarty pants piece of advice, like mm -hmm. you shouldn't have your character staring into the middle distance. <laughs> so I, I thought I'd have Humbert give his take on that one. Or it's wrong to talk about people being seated. And of course, so Humbert puts in his two cents worth about that one too. <laughs> so I generally use them, yeah, you rightly say, to drive the plot forward or to comment on the plot or just to comment on various pants views of writing that I might not necessarily hold with. One of the things I think that interested me about this is that um, that you do a great job of like creating like a really it's a page turning plot. We really care about what's going to happen to Humbert. Did you map this plot out? That you know the 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 page turning aspect, the best you know the thriller aspect of the plot out in advance, or did that just emerge from the writing about the characters? Oh, that emerged as I went along, but. Um... The more I wrote about, the more I knew the way the book was going to unfold. So probably by the time I was uh, only a few chapters in, I knew the entire plot and I had to write it all down very, very quickly because the book was just demanding for me to get it on paper. And as regards the thriller aspect of it, I was quite scientific about it, actually. Um, because, you see, having read quite a lot about writing and dissected quite a lot of thrillers, I'm very aware that to hold on to your reader, you need to be striving to create dramatic tension the whole time. Now, dramatic tension is something that playwrights talk about a lot, but novelists not so much. I don't know why. Um, but more or less on every page, I did try to set up something that would give you dramatic tension. So I, I don't know if you've explored this issue. Maybe you have. Maybe you're aware of how you create dramatic tension in a novel. Do you want me to mention it for, for the benefit of our audience? Oh, absolutely. This is what we're here for. So tell us, how do you, how okay. do you, do you create dramatic tension in a novel about people who are largely sitting around and talking about how great they are. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. A, not oh, an easy well, challenge to master. Yeah. Well, dramatic tension, one of the main methods is by conflict. Now, there are two kinds of conflict uh, that we talk about with dramatic tension. One of them is, uh, the, the main obvious one is external. So two people arguing, there you've got dramatic tension. If you have two people that are agreeing, that are agreeing on something, there's not much to interest the reader there or the viewer uh, or the audience if it's a play. But if you've got two people arguing about something, right away you've got dramatic tension. So that's external dramatic tension. 
Now, internal dramatic tension is, uh, sorry, internal conflict is when you get someone debating something in his head. Um, he, he might have, uh, he might be caught on the horns of a dilemma and or he might have to choose a course of action. He's confused about it. So that's internal and external conflict as a means of creating dramatic tension. And you might have noticed right from page one, there's conflict in that book. Um, Humbert doesn't think there's conflict when he has his meeting with Slef in Slef's bedroom in his house that Humbert's climbed through the bedroom window to access because Slef won't open the front door. <laughs> And Slef ejects him as Humbert would have it good-naturedly <laughs> and hurls him out. Um, but yes, so there's an obvious example of creating dramatic tension, the conflict between Humbert and Slef on pages one and two and possibly three. But where, also uh, a conflict yeah. between what the, between that the reader sees between what Humbert is telling them and what the yeah. reader knows to be, you know, the more likely truth of the matter. So you've got, a, a, you're creating two conflicts at once, which is uh, tricky and engaging. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And then that's the whole thriller aspect of it coming in, of the unreliably, unreliable narrator. Um, so then the other things are mystery and suspense to create dramatic tension. So um, mystery is where you, well, a, a typical thing would be a locked room or a locked box. You don't know what's in it. You know that something's in it and at some stage it's going to be opened up. So we've got a bit of mystery in Ezra Slef and then we've also got suspense. Now suspense is where you, you may know that something's gonna happen but you don't know when it's going to happen, or you don't exactly know what it is that's going to happen. Um, and suspense does overlap to some degree with mystery. Now, at the end of, is it chapter one, um, Humber mentions how there are certain things that happen to you in your childhood, I think he says, or something of that nature. And often they you, you don't understand the significance until years or even decades later. It's something along those lines anyway. And um, there you have, right from the get-go, the suspense being set up. The reader is thinking, well, what is this thing that's going to happen later? Oh, that was it. He crossed paths with a school bully, didn't he? And he said, our paths were to cross again decades later with uh, cataclysmic con uh, consequences or something of the sort. So there you are. You're looking forward to that happening later in the novel. You know, so, uh, it, it also interested me too that you do a good job of pacing the lengths of the chapters and giving each chapter a title. This is, uh, you know... Uh, kind of uh, an interesting decision because it really does lend to the the quick the quick reading uh, of the book. So talk about that decision because, I mean, the tip uh, some postmodern novels, you know, a paragraph will go on for pages or a sentence will, as you mentioned. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I think you give us a couple of Sleffian examples. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, um, this opens up a fantastic debate, actually, or discussion about readability in novels. And of course, um, what's his name? Foster Wallace, right? Well, Foster Wallace, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a big thing about, you know, how readable is a book like that? Not just in terms of the sheer thousand page length of the thing, but the the wealth of descriptive detail with which he goes into things. Um, so, yes, when I wrote this book, I thought, although I want to have a nod in the direction of people like that, I don't want to actually write that way. <laughs> what I want to do is have this page-turning novel, which maybe people can read and they think they're reading, a, they're getting a Foster Wallace-type experience. Um, and as someone who dissected a lot of thriller novels, I sort of knew how to pace it and how to structure it. And uh, um, you always try and end on a cliffhanger. Now, I don't know if you'd noticed that, but at the end of each chapter, it's sort of set up with something that makes you think, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. So I used all the little gimmicky techniques of pulp fiction novelists to create that. And as for the chapter titles, yeah, um, they had echoes of Humbert's pretensions in them, didn't they? But at the same time, they were sort of descriptive of what was going on to draw you in. You know, one of the things that, uh, I've been interested in of late is is uh, lying, and, and you know the the it permeates our society, and it's often seen as a balm, a mean, a way of you know creating, you know, easy conversation and getting along easily. The the, the supposed white lies, but lies play a, a a big part in this novel, mostly because I think Humbert lies to himself constantly i mean he he fabricates his own reality within which he can just do all sorts of outrageously stupid and, and cruel things and, and <laughs> justify them by virtue of the fact that the way from his per, supposed perception they're they're neither cruel nor stupid <laughs> so talk about creating a character it it elevating unreliability to a sort of art form of almost storytelling and <laughs> oh well wow now that is a that is a question um i've always when i've read books myself of course i've always loved unreliable narrators i don't know why but they do tend to be popular especially the sort that you could classify as unreliable unreliable narrators by which i mean sometimes they're telling the truth and sometimes they're not telling the truth and you as the reader have to kind of sort it out which is which um oh god sorry i've lost the question rick remind uh, me what uh, the question so was. talk about um the kind of there's the whole, you're in the novel, you're telling this whole story of yeah. Umbert and Slef and their encounters and, and their encounters with, I, I can't remember, Renstop, the Price Oh, Renstop, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. Narskoff. 
So um, there, that's one level of storytelling, but there's a, a level of storytelling that goes on that Humbert, there are the, the, all the stories he tells himself, well, oh, this is works out. I don't need to worry about this marriage thing. And, and this will be, this is going to work out really well for himself. He's kind of like Wiley Coyote or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I suppose that we've all got, to some extent, that duplicitous nature inside ourselves, haven't we? We do like, probably, all of us to put a little bit of a gloss on our experience. So I, I just took that aspect of myself and exaggerated it and kind of became, put my own feet, as it were, in Humbert's shoes, much as <laughs> much as Slef does and Humbert claims to do. <laughs> Sorry. Um, when I was writing about Humbert, so I thought, look, if I was in this position, how would I feel? And obviously, I wouldn't do what Humbert does, but what would I want to do? If, if I was just immoral enough, what would I do? And that's how I came up with the lies that Humbert tells to himself and to the world, of course. Yeah, there is, you, you have to give of yourself to write a book, I guess, and any <laughs> book, but especially a book of that nature. I hope I aren't giving too many in insights into what I'm really like. <laughs> One of the, the fun characters is Rez Resnipt and Arkoff. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah. Uh, you have a lot of fun with, with this character. So talk about, uh, you know, the, this is, is the, the weird aspect of the novel. So talk about uh, using that. And I think it's a, a rather classic, no, uh, you know, a, a classic ploy. So, and you play that really well in terms of the literary fiction and uh, the reality experience of the book. Oh, yeah. Well, let me say, first of all, that what I found in my explorations of comedy writing, because this isn't my first funny book, what I found is if you want to write comic writing, you really have to play it straight. And I think the best funny shows as well on television that you see are the ones where the comedy comes from just playing it straight and the characters aren't necessarily aware of the humor and you know what i'm talking about i'm oh, sure exactly yeah 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 so i was always determined to do that and with rensip i didn't want to come along in a big clumping way and say look here's the devil you tempting my characters to go wrong so again in in the interest of playing it straight I decided I was going to introduce him as just some guy that Humbert meets in a bar. He's just some guy. And um, you, you mentioned a film, was it Daniel West and the Devil? The, the Devil and Daniel Webster. It's, uh, I think uh, it's oh, not a book, yeah, Daniel, but it's a famous yeah. story by uh, one of our American writers. Yeah. Um, has it been made into a movie by any chance? I think it probably has. Where the, yeah. I think I've seen the movie, actually, an old black and white movie. That sounds about right. And and it ends up with some lawyer uh, having this trial where he's 
he's pleading Daniel Webster's case, is it? Or is Daniel Webster the lawyer? Yes, you got it exactly. Yeah, yeah, I remember it well. Well, I suppose probably there was that kind of influence on it. The, the devil, is he appears as just a normal guy who can be your best friend. That's that, and that's how, how I wanted to bring the devil into it, or Rensip Dinarskov, as he is referred to in Ezra Slef. Um, and, of course, there are echoes there of American authors who I've admired, like Edgar Allan Poe and Russell H. Green and, and the Daniel Webster figure, too, I'm sure. One of the things that happens when you read a book like this with such a strong voice that's so enjoyable, you start looking at the dressers in your house and going, hmm, well, could I lie underneath that dresser? Almost. <laughs> <laughs> Quite. Um, well, does this thing in classical antiquity, and I think it's referred to in a footnote, and um, I, I read that somewhere and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be good to take this and just make it a bit more into this womb-like space that um, he's almost retreating into the womb, isn't he? And I think he might actually mention that. And that's his place of refuge whenever threatened, this childlike, uh, baby-like indeed, return to the womb under his dresser. But of course... Um, I wanted to, I wanted to be able to add a wealth of detail to it, and that's why it became a dresser, very carefully described with the polished floor and his certain particular arm and leg movements he makes to get under the thing. Now, uh, and then, yeah, go ahead. I was just about to say, and of course, he has almost this separate secret life under the dresser where he takes his dictaphone and even dictates his notes and his thoughts. Now, um, ha having conquered the, the world of postmodern literary satire, of postmodern literary satires, uh, where yeah. do you go next? Will you be writing novels under your own name or under a, a pseudonym, a thriller under a pseudonym? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Can I inflict details of my latest books on you, Rick? Uh, sure. Fantastic. Well, first of all, uh, as you know, Ezra Slef was quite an ambitious book. And when I finished that, I knew two things, really. One was that I didn't want to write another another book with any hint of postmodernism in it. And I'll tell you why. I thought, really... I'm not going to do better than Ezra Slef. I think that is as good a novel of that type that I can do. So I want to move away from that. But I want to be just as ambitious as that. And how can I be as ambitious as Ezra Slef? And um, I'm, I'm a big fan of American literature. And I've read a lot of uh, Norman Mailer and Ernest Hemingway, a bit of Cormac McCarthy, a uh, bit of Chandler, you, uh, quite a lot of novels, novelists who are quintessentially American, Steinbeck, Twain, etc., etc. And in and among the reading, I'd come across the concept of the great American novel. Mm -hmm. um, so I assume you know what I'm talking about. Shall I mention what this is for the benefit of our audience, the great American novel? Well, well sure. Right. Well, the great American novel, there was this... Um, 
writer back in uh, 1868 who wrote an essay, was he called Forrest, something like that? Um, Forrest Sherwood or Sherwood Forrester thing, maybe I've got the name wrong, but in this essay, he put forward the idea that there should be a great American novel, which should have four characteristics. It should be A, written by an American, B, set in America, D, in some way capture the essence of America, and D, deal in some way with the American national character. And after he wrote that essay, various big-name American novelists in the decades that followed had a stab at writing the great American novel, which should be capitalised, by the way, the great American novel. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be an interesting project for someone who has only ever been to America on a month-long road trip and who hails from the town of Huddersfield in Yorkshire, England, wouldn't it be something if that person were to write the great American novel? So after I finished left, I sat down and I wrote the great American novel. <laughs> and, and it's called The Making of Joe Wilde, by the way. And um, I started pitching it, first of all, to literary agents, which is the first port of call for a writer. And it was, con you know, you always think you've written something really great, by the way, when you, when you write novels. So I convinced myself I'd written a brilliant novel and they would be falling all over themselves to sign me up. And I got a load of rejection slips. But then one literary agent sent me some feedback and I realised what the problem was. They said, look, we really like your writing. It's very confident, but we're not going to be able to sell an American novel written by an English writer. It just won't fly. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's it. You know, I'm wasting my time then pitching to these literary agents. Um, I'm going to have to approach the publishers myself. And that means, obviously, the small press, not the bigger presses. And I also realised that I'd have to approach American presses because that was the only way that I'd get some credibility with the great American novel being written by an English author. But I didn't pitch it as the great American novel because they might have thought I was a bit unhinged. So I, I sent this novel out. And I'm pleased to say that Santa Monica Press, who are a few hours' drive south of you, if I'm not mistaken, they've picked it up. They're publishing it in July last year. And without my even mentioning it, the guy that runs the company referred to it as the great American novel written by a Brit. So, <laughs> hey, I'm so pleased there. <laughs> now, okay, was it published under your own name? It will be published oh. under my own name. Okay. Yeah, it's it's due out in at the moment. I think July or around about July twenty twenty two, and I like to think it's a lot of fun. But we'll see what people think. I've been speaking with Andrew Komarnachi, and his new book is Ezra Sleff, the next Nobel laureate in literature. Thank you for joining me, Andy. It's been a guest. Hey, well, yeah. Thank you for having me, Rick. It's been a pleasure. It's been fantastic talking to you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.